Welcome to Film Grain, the official podcast of the Film Society of Northwestern Pennsylvania and the Greater Erie Film Office. My name is John Lyons. I am a filmmaker, teaching artist, and the director of programming for the Film Society. And I'm Erica Berlin. I'm not Erica Berlin. I'm Mike Berlin. Oh my gosh, what am I saying? No. (laughs) I'm Mike Berlin, Erica Berlin's husband. All right, good start. Erica is um, enjoying some some time away, some girlfriend's time, as I understand it, Mike. And uh, so this is this is the guy's solo episode. Yes, we we she, miss you, Erica. She'll be back soon. She gets back on Friday. Yeah, she's down in sweet sweet Savannah, enjoying herself. She's actually uh, she's sitting by a pool right now, so let's not feel too bad for her. Yeah, that's pretty nice. Pretty nice. Well, before we get into the episode, Mike, I wanted to let the listeners know that the Erie Horror Fest, um, which, of course, is a program now of the Film Society, uh, we announced our call for entries recently and just wanted to remind our listeners that the early bird discount deadline is coming up at the end of April. So uh, if you want to get in on that early bird discount for your Um, narrative features or shorts, documentary features or shorts, or for your pitch project ideas for our pitch competition, go to filmfreeway.com and search for Erie Horror Fest. Again, that is Erie with two E's. Um, Or you can go to our official website, eriehorrorfest.com, and there's a link there to the Film Freeway as well. We're taking submissions through the month of July, Um, But, of course, the closer you get to that July 31st date, um, the submission fees go up. Um, But, yeah, just wanted to get that out there, and we're really looking forward to um, checking out everybody's films. Mike, we've already gotten films from, I want to say, eight or nine different countries, which is really, really exciting. Say what? Yeah. Have you gotten to watch them yet? Uh, I'm not on the judges group, but we have um, seven judges that are watching and rating the films as they come in. Um, I'll be watching uh, kind of the finalist ones as we as we get to the end of summer and uh, just before fest to decide which ones get in. But yeah, pretty exciting. I think this is going to be the horror fest to end all horror fests. Uh, just right. because it's like at the Warner, it's I, I, that's been that's been announced, right? That's I'm not. Yeah, yeah, up. we're at the war- back at the Warner. Okay, yeah, and just like some of the things I've heard, which I will not. It's not my place to say. People want to jump on this. It's going to be an amazing, incredible event. Absolute, and that's October fifth through the eighth. I'll just it's throw that out too. It's going to be spectacular. Spectacular, October five through eight. Warner Theater. So what are we talking about today, Mike? Today, uh, so with Erica gone, uh, John and I wanted to sort of dive into our inner dorkdom. Really show you guys, these guys are cinema nerds. We decided to go through and uh, name five films, personal to both of us, that are not necessarily in the main thread of the cineast sort of fandom. And, but these are five films that we, if you were trying to talk to John and I, and we were at a bar, and it's like, if you mentioned one of these films, and it's just like, we'd be like, oh, I know the language you speak. Mm-hmm. We're not talking about, because we talked about, like, not the popular films, like we had mentioned Blade Runner. We're not going to talk about something like that, that John and I both have an affinity for. 
And I, I'm probably like no Citizen Kane, right? No Citizen Kane, no Godfather. Yeah. Like we love those films, and yeah. obviously you're talking about the Mush, Mount Rushmore. But maybe films that are a little bit off the beaten path. And now, John, I I, I feel like some of these maybe you're going to be like, eh, that's still a pretty popular film, but we'll see. We'll see what we'll maybe see what... for you and I. But the idea is, which I, I thought your idea was great, Mike. We're kind of approaching this list from a discovery perspective. So maybe not all of our listeners, uh, you know, consume as much film as you and I do in their daily uh, and weekly routines. So, you know, these are films that both of us get behind. We don't know uh, each other's lists. Yes, this will be a surprise. And, and five is really difficult. Like, I hate that question, Mike, when people are like, what's your favorite movie or what's your top whatever movies? Like, I can never answer that question. This is how I felt. These are not our top five. There's other ones that I was like, oh, do I want to talk about that or do I want to talk about this? And I, I tried to dis, uh, disperse it a little bit through uh, time and, um, you know, some are American, some are international for me. Okay. With me, it was it was just what it, when you asked me that question, just the films that I felt uh, in the last like week, actually, honestly, like the last three days is when I've really been thinking about this. And this list for me could have probably changed if you would ask me next week. But this was the five that rose to the top of the discovery list at this time. Who wants to go first? Uh, I can go yeah, first. Yeah, let's hear it. I'm okay. I'm okay going first. Uh, I'm gonna. I'm gonna try to do this maybe in chronological order. And I, I apologize. Got sort of done with work a little late, so. These are just films that had a great impression on me and I would probably need in a, in a more perfect world would do a little bit more research to make sure that I'm uh, informing people correctly. But my first one is an American classic. It's not always the first one that people go to, but I'm going to go with Charlie Chaplin's The Great Dictator. Oh, I love it. I own it. <laughs> you own it. Okay. I own three Chaplin films. I own City Lights. The Great Dictator and Limelight. Uh, those are my <clears throat> personal favorites. I mean, I love modern times and stuff too, but this is a great pick, Mike. Why'd you pick this one? What is The Great Dictator? The Great Dictator, uh, now, I think it was his first talkie, actually. I think it's the first one he, he actually speaks in. Uh, the Great Dictator, it's a little bit of a twist of Mark Twain's uh, The Prince and the Pauper. It has incredible relevance to the time that it's being produced. And Hitler is rising up uh, through the Third Reich, and Chaplin is looking uh, from his vantage point, and, he's, and he is calling out even when uh, Chamberlain and some of the other world leaders are not calling uh, Hitler out for his uh, tyrannical and imperialistic uh, ambitions. And Chaplin's like, this guy's a problem. And, you know, before fascism became a dirty, dirty mm -hmm. word, Chaplin is way ahead of the curve. And so he creates sort of a very dark, satirical commentary on uh, on on Hitler. He plays uh, two roles. <laughs> he ends up uh, finding himself uh, Heinkel. That's Heinkel. right. The, the name... <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of thinly veiled uh, <laughs> references to what is happening in Germany, but he finds himself in charge of this fictitious army. But at the same time, it's Chaplin's commentary to the world to pay attention to what is happening in Germany. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it very, you know, it's one of those films that's like, I mean, it's Chaplin. So there's definitely comedy front to back, right? But... It definitely has a darker edge um, than a lot of his stuff. And because it is a commentary on such a dark part of 
humanity's history, that's kind of overshadowing the whole thing. So even while you're laughing, it hits kind of hits you in the gut, right? A lot of times with the laughter because it's so tragic. And, you know, remember the scene where he's playing with the globe. He has this giant globe. The globe. And he's kicking the, the planet and just, you know, it's like he's playing with it. And that scene just says so much, right? Like everything was just hanging in the balance at that time. And, you know, the world was just at, at war. And... uh it really uh, says a lot. I feel like it's, and I, I picked it because I think it's one of these films that I, I do find myself going back to it time and time again. And I think it's one of these ones, unfortunately, that is sort of gaining um, relevance uh, again. Uh-huh. And you could say the same thing about modern times uh, and City Lights, honestly. And even The Kid, that, that's sort of a beautiful thing about Chaplin. And you could have picked any any of those films. But it's just like, I just felt like I had to include something. And I know people might roll their eyes, but it's like, when people roll their eyes about Chaplin, my question is, have you really sat down and watched him? The other thing I love is there's a lot of German expressionism in the cinematography. And so there's a little bit of a, a tip of the cap to that artistic style that was established in Germany, uh, most notably and famous, uh, d- famously done in uh, Dr. Caligari, or the cabinet of Dr. Caligari. And uh, so he is not, he's not just... He's not just condemning him. He's also sort of uh, giving praise to the to their contributions uh, artistically mm-hmm. to the world of cinema. But it's it was a it was a, it was a time and a situation that was fraught with peril. And he Chaplin, like only Chaplin could do, found kind of finds the humor yeah. in it. And this film, by the way, is a incredible risk at the time of that it comes out. It has a, a huge amount of backlash. Things were on mm-hmm. edge. As you might as you might expect, and Chaplin really, in one of the ballsiest moves by a filmmaker ever, still goes ahead and produces it. He writes it, he directs it, and and stars in it. So it's incredible. Yeah, he needed to say something. It was important to say something, and and he stepped up and did it. Yeah, the the world needed that film. We need that film today, uh, as you were, um, you know, kind of hinting at. We need these reminders. Okay, great yeah. dictator. That was a good one. Uh, I'm going to play off kind of the society under oppression feel, uh, which connects to one of my picks. Uh, Mike, I was hoping that, well, I'll just throw it out there. This might be a surprise for you. There's a film called Barbara. It's a German film from 2012. I've actually never seen it. Okay. Never seen it. Okay. So, uh, oh, by the way, is where can people watch The Great Dictator? I forgot to ask you that. It's available right now on HBO Max. Oh, fantastic. All right, great. So Barbara is available on Canopy and Tubi for free, or you can rent it, of course, on any of the majors uh, for like three bucks. This is by German filmmaker Christian Petzold and actress Nina Haas, who is a German actress. They are kind of like my modern day Godard and Karina. I love this couple, this filmmaking couple. Um, They've done several films together. Mike, I recommend every one of their films. I don't know if you've seen any of um, Petzold's films, but he occasionally has films on the Criterion channel. I know for sure at least one or two are on the Criterion um, channel right now. What's on there right now? It's a good question. The Phoenix, I think. The Phoenix is on there with uh, him and Nina Haas. So, yeah, I recommend... (laughs) for the listeners 
to check out uh, Christian Petzold's films and any films, honestly, starring Nina Haas. I think she's a fantastic actress. So the story is, um, this is East Germany in the 1980s. You know, we know what the situation is in, in Germany in, in this time. She plays a doctor who's good at her job, but has a secret that she's playing really close to herself. And she's parent paranoid she uh, is being very careful because she has been relocated to a small country hospital in East Germany and you come to find out that she wants out of East Germany she is trying to get out of East Germany and she's being watched by the Stasi which are were the kind of very brutal uh, secret police during this time period and they are they are watching her, they are following her, they raid her uh, apartment, they torment her, they strip search her, and she's working under a doctor in this small hospital who also has uh, his own issues with the Stasi. So it's a story about old Germany and living under constant oppression and that tension and dread overshadowing everyone's move and everyone living at that time. So it's a powerful character study. And like many of Petzold's films, you know, it's a political story that's very much a reflection of Germany, Germans on Germany and exploring deep-seated moral dilemmas. Um, and I just uh, love their films. So there, Mike, I got one that you hadn't seen. All right. You, I have not seen it. Uh, whenever you talk, uh, another film I would recommend, Lives of Others, mm, uh, getting mm -hmm. into that sort of theme on some level. But I'm John, I'm going to check it out. Awesome. That's what this podcast is about. I don't think I'm going to have any on here, by the way, that you haven't okay. seen. I tried to pick a couple that maybe you hadn't, but I we'll see. We'll see how it goes. I, I, I wasn't necessarily trying to <laughs> trying to stump you or anything like that. So kudos to All you. Good. You've given All me good. you've given me homework now. That's what do you good. got next? My next one. I, I know you've seen this. I or at least I really hope you've seen this. Uh, to me, this is arguably one of the possibly uh, the top three screenplays of all time. Uh, it is the sweet smell of success. Nineteen fifty seven. Have you you've seen this one? Have not. <laughs> Whoa! I got you on one. All right. Uh, Alexander uh, Mackendrick, uh, written also by Clifford Oditz and Ernest Leheim, or Lemon. Uh, John, wow, you haven't seen this. Holy cow. Is this on the Criterion channel? Where can you watch this one? Usually it's on Criterion. It comes and goes. Uh, but this is, wow. Okay, you are in for a doozy. Tell me about it. <laughs> it okay, first things first. Uh, it's, it's a very, it's a it's noir, so anybody who watches this knows that I love noir, but it's a little bit of a different slant. It stars uh, Burt Lancaster and Tony Curtis, and this is kind of one of these ones, sort of popular at the time, but sort of what goes by the wayside, and I think it's had a little bit of a resurgence. And Burt Lancaster plays a gossip columnist, a uh, writer, mm -hmm. and Tony Curtis is responsible for getting him the dirt. <laughs> And they are in the 1950s jazz uh, clubs of uh, the West Village. And Burt Lancaster uses his power of his status like an iron will on people. And I don't want to give away too much because it, it sort of unfolds very, uh, very fast. But the dialogue is some of the snappiest that's ever been produced ever. And Tony Curtis, I think in particular, is somebody that doesn't get necessarily uh, referenced as much as he used to. Burt Lancaster obviously is a legend. 
but you really get to see these two chew into each other and they're they have a relationship uh tony and bert's characters in the film they have a relationship that at some point is they're re- they depend on each other although bert lancaster depends on tony curtis a lot less and it is very uh very toxic <laughs> and so it winds itself around really quickly and essentially uh burke lancaster's uh younger sister who he's very protective of becomes enamored with a rising jazz musician in the scene and burt lancaster does not approve of him and he uses tony curtis to find the dirt on Ooh. him and i'll leave it at that but it is incredible uh, just wonderful performances, professional execution from cinematography, directing, acting, writing across the board. And again, it, for a while, I think it was falling to the wayside. I actually owned this DVD. It has sort of, it is, I think it's found new life as people have sort of discovered it. And I discovered it back in college. And then a f- about 10 years later, Leonardo DiCaprio was singing the praises uh-huh. of the film. And and then it seemed like Criterion Collection, uh, Criterion made it a, pr- uh, a priority to get to sort of uh, restore the film and it is awesome well i subscribe to criterion so uh i will definitely if it's not already in my queue i'll i'll add it and check it out man that's awesome yeah i just yeah. confirmed i for sure i have not seen it um so that's exciting oh, oh and just so you, I, I just looked it up the names of burt lancaster and tony curtis's jj hunsucker is burt lancaster and sydney falco already the names <laughs> like those are just amazing names cinematic I, I, names. I really want people to watch that one i love that film so much and so go ahead john your Great next pick. pick well my next one mike uh is one that you and i talked about a lot uh in recent times uh this is 1969's they shoot horses don't they i'm going to put that one out there because once i, I thought about it yeah <laughs> once i discovered it and i was like oh mike you gotta check this out like you know, I was really, really into this film once I discovered it. Now, as far as watching it, this one is really hard to find. Um, I looked and yeah. it's not available to rent like on any of the streamers that I could find. You'd have to track down a Blu-ray or a DVD or like a pirated um, upload of it somewhere. Um, not that we're, we're saying that you should pirate, but um, this might be the only option if you don't have a physical media player at this point. But Mike, as you know, this is Depression era. I know a lot about <laughs> yeah, this. Mike, Mike knows an <laughs> awful lot about this. Um, Can we talk about it? You want to talk yeah, about it a little let's bit? Yeah, let's talk about it. So it's directed by Sidney Pollack. It's his first uh, feature outside of television, by the way, that he directed. Man, and it was like... Uh, it's, it was so well done, right? Because there's so many moving parts in yeah. this film and, and energy. And I mean, the setup is basically it's depression era and it's these real inhumane dance marathons that took place in America during the depression. And people would have, you know, dance marathons basically until they dropped or died. And people did die really during these competitions. And the last couple standing would win, you know, a, a pot of money. But the interesting thing is, um, you know, you're surrounded by stands and there would be business owners and kind of the elite class watching uh, the poor the poor people dance in front of them. And if you saw a couple that you liked, Mike, right, or a, 
a, mm-hmm. a cute guy or something, you could have him wear a, a jacket with your company's, you know, logo on it or something, and you could kind of sponsor them. This was a real practice. Yeah. All of this. This this was a these were real events. But Jane Fonda, uh, this is Jane Fonda. I think's first role, uh, if I remember. I think it's it's either her first or first second. Or early yeah. early career yeah. Jane Fonda, and she's great. And it won one Oscar for supporting actor Gig Young, um, who I believe, Mike, he was kind of the behind-the-scenes person running the whole show. Yeah. He, yeah, he plays this sort of the MC mm-hmm. on some level. And, uh, yeah, he's, uh, he's the heavy. Yeah. <laughs> it was nominated for eight other Oscars, which is exciting. Um, it's brilliant. It's terrifying. It's America then and now in my opinion and um yeah they hort they shoot horses don't they you want to say anything else mike before we go to the next it was uh, based off of a short story read by horace mccoy who was a really famous novelist back in the day and uh used to hold a lot more relevance and the book is actually in the library of congress as far as noir books it is considered sort of on that pantheon and and still i think to this day has a bit of a cult following that's awesome yeah all right so what do you uh, got next yeah uh, my next one. Okay, we're gonna go. We're gonna go across the pond. The first time I saw it, and I've seen it two or three times now. Uh, but I I love this film. It's uh, Truffaut's Shoot the Piano Player. Man, I haven't seen this one either. I haven't seen this either. You haven't seen. Okay, <laughs> Truffaut wanted to come out of the gate and make sort of an American style film, so he shoots it the French equivalent of cinemascope, uh, which I think they called uh, dioscope. Mm-hmm. Uh, over in Europe at the time and it gives the film such a unique feel it's got some humorous elements to it but he is telling a crime story of a piano player who I don't want to go too much into it but a piano player who finds out from his wife that she's been cheating on him and he doesn't show response to her and she ends up killing herself this is like very early in the film so you know spoilers (laughs) but he feels such shame that he goes leaves his uh, his uh, big musical career and becomes a piano player in a local tavern and becomes pretty well loved there. And the film is a little bit about the relationships he has with the three different women in his life. And then his younger brother gets involved in a uh, in a crime uh, situation that he has to help him out with. Uh, and there is some just incredible, incredible moments. And it has all the touchstones of early of Truffaut sort of helping to establish the French new wave movement, uh, you know, sort of taking the camera and getting out there and shooting on the streets and uh, breaking outside of the uh, outside of the studio system, voiceover, jump cuts. Uh, it is a very kinetic film, as a lot of uh, French new wave is. This is the one that Truffaut, I think, really starts to get his ground as an artist. Oh, that's really cool. Um, I mean, look at uh, looking at his filmography, he does the 400 Blows, then he does this, shoot the piano player. Then he does Jules and Jim. I mean, I I love Jules and Jim and 400 Blows, of course. I don't know how I missed this one, Mike, but how about those three films as your first three features in a row? Like, holy shit. <laughs> yeah, for your first, you know. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> Damn. Pretty, pretty. Pretty impressive. Pretty impressive. Yeah, John, if you've never seen this one, and it's funny. There's a very dark sense of humor to it. And he has, most of his cast is, most of them don't go on to do another big film. He's really working with unknown actors. And there is um, the, the most famous scene in the film is called the audition scene. And uh, I don't want to say too much, but the way that Truffaut ends up editing the film and how he shoots it 
And he uses a lot of sort of uh, the Battleship Potemkin, uh, Eisenstein style of mm. editing. And it becomes a trademark, not just of uh, him, but of the genre overall and how they do things. Because it really draws attention to the character's psyche at the time. This is a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful Where film. can I see it, Mike? Is this on Criterion 2 or is it somewhere else? This one also happens to be, right now, on HBO Oh, Max. no shit. Okay, great. Yeah. Well, then yeah. I, I will be watching that, too. Thanks. All right. Well, since you're in France and you're talking about using the camera, you know, really someone that's in charge of their craft and using the camera and editing and things to tell story. I got one for you, Mike. Okay. This is, a, this is another recent one. This is 2007. Have you seen The Diving Bell and the Butterfly? I may have heard okay. of it. <laughs> okay. All right. <laughs> so this is a true story of L editor Jean-Dominique Bobby. And it's directed by renowned artist in his own right, Julian Schnabel. Uh, again, it's a true story, a person they, who had it all, and they are in an accident, and their life completely changes, and it humbles them and brings them to this point of reflection. And the thing that I love about cinema, um, in the language of cinema, is this film puts the viewer directly in the experience of someone that's completely paralyzed except for their left eye, which they use to communicate. It's just mind-blowing. And then to make a film about that and make it so, for me, so emotional and dramatic and romantic. There's so many sequences in the film that are played out like in first-person perspective. This one had me in tears. I love it. It's on Pluto TV or you can rent it on all the major platforms, again, for about three bucks. Have you seen, dive, you've seen then Diving Bell and the Butterfly? Not only have I seen it, I've actually met Julian Schnabel before. What? Yeah, years ago, uh, when I was working on the Elvis Costello show, uh, Spectacle for uh, Bravo, he was one of the guests, and uh, it was a conversation between him, Elvis Costello, and Lou Reed. Holy shit. Which was pretty awesome, yeah. But yeah, uh, I got to meet uh, briefly, not like anything like significant and stuff like that. That's Just awesome. shake the man's hand. Awesome. Uh, but I love, love this film. And it, again, it sort of, it touches on, I, I think he is pulling a lot of stuff from the French New Wave. But at the same time, like anything he does, he really makes it his mm -hmm. own. And uh, it is a, yeah, it's a beautiful story. Yeah. All right. It can be a hard watch. Oh, for sure. Too, but it's, for sure. It's heart wrenching. Yeah. But funny. Yeah, there are funny parts. Yeah. All right. Uh, you ready for my next one? Yeah. All right. Another one that might be uh, a little a little popular, but I would be remiss if I didn't add one film from the genre that I love so, so much and that I studied a lot in college. It is uh, Italian neorealism, and it is sort of the end of that movement, and it's Federico Fellini's Eight and a Half. Oh, I love it. <laughs> I love I love this. This is easily, this is one of my favorite yeah. films of all time. There's a lot of people who have seen it, so this is not necessarily a risky pick or anything like that, because anybody who sees it and is like a true, true fan of cinema understands. From the very beginning, the being stuck in the traffic jam, that to me is like one of the greatest scenes and greatest openings of all time. Yeah, do you want to describe it a little bit? Because that kind of uh, gives you the style of like the dream, the dreamy style of yeah. the film. So it's named Eight and a Half because Fellini, he had done seven films. And one of them is an anthology that he had collaborated with other filmmakers from Italy with. 
And um, Fellini at this time, he is the star of Italian film and, and is a massive star in Italy, particularly coming off of the heels of La Dolce Vita, La Strada, uh, Il uh, Ventino. Mastriani, I mean, is like an amazing actor. Yeah. Yeah. And I, they were together for a long time. He comes into Eight and a Half and everybody is sort of asking him, you know, what's Fellini have to say about our culture? And it's kind of catches him at an interesting time as an artist where he, the expectations are high and he has nothing to say. <laughs> <laughs> and it's about, it's sort of about that period of his life where it's just like he has nothing to say, but there is an expectation that he will. From a personal expression standpoint, every artist, it's like, I got something to say. I've got a message <laughs> to say. And he goes in the reverse, just the total opposite. He's like, yeah, I'm kind of dried up right now. <laughs> And makes this incredible film about it. Uh, cinematography by Gianna Di Venanzo, who he worked with uh, most of his career, and he does find uh, he does find things to say again later on in his career, whether it's uh, through uh, Roma or uh, Giulietta de Flowers. Uh, but this is to me, this is it's funny the film where he has where he's just sort of speechless and just trying to live his existence is. To me, sort of his perfect film. Yeah, I love I love this film a lot. Uh, I I really don't have anything to add. Uh, it was it was another one that when we first started showing films at film at the Erie Art Museum, and I had my first program. Uh, I made sure it was it was one of the ones up there, just because I had never seen it on a screen of any size, really. And uh, man, I would love to see it someday in a in an actual theater. That would be beautiful. I. When I was when I lived in New York, I did get to see a thirty-five millimeter print of oh, it, man. and it was just like, you know, that was like, that was like a moment yeah. for me. Uh, and I'd be, I would be, wouldn't be doing due diligence if I didn't mention the unbelievable score by Nino Rota. Yeah, great pick. What year was it? Eight and a half. When did that come out? Nineteen sixty-three. Okay. Whew. All right. Well, then I'm going to switch it up completely, Mike. Please do. I'm going to go to a documentary. Oh, All right. <laughs> okay. I should have thought of something like that. That's okay. So when I saw Baraka, uh, actually I'll say when I saw um, Koyana Skatsi, Baraka, Samsara, any of the films in the Katsi trilogy, each of them really like opened my eyes to cinema in a way that, you know, they're a combination of experimental film and documentary. Oh, I'll really quickly say, so Baraka is 1992. It's available on IMDb TV and Fubo TV with ads. And of course you can rent on all the major platforms. It's directed by Ron Frick or Ron Fricky. I'm not sure which one it is. Do you know Mike? I'm not sure. He's got an E on the end I don't of it. Know so off I don't the top know. of my head. Okay, so he was camera op for Koyana Scotzi, which was nineteen eighty two from director Godfrey Reggio. But these are like when I saw Baraka, it was like a mind blowing, <laughs> earth shattering experience and it's a commentary on mankind our relationship to one another religion our relationship to the natural world the planet technology but it's an experience i'll say again it's beautiful sometimes grotesque it's a marriage a true marriage of image and sound 
It's intimate. It's curious. It's filled with wonder and enlightenment. I do consider these films kind of in the way of like a Terrence Malick film, like a religious experience. So this is my church. I was profoundly uh, moved and changed forever by Baraka and then, you know, seeking other films like it. Koyana Scotsi, Samsara. Yeah. Have you seen all of these, Mike? I assume you have. I have. These films are living and breathing. I, I think that's what makes them so unique and so special. And it's like, even if you don't want to necessarily go out and explore all three of them, watch one of them. They're singular. Yeah, it's not talking heads. It's not talking heads. It's not, it's not like a documentary where, you know, there's a, let's say a topic, you know, that you are having a interviewing a bunch of people and you're exploring and getting people's opinions on like this is telling you a story really just through imagery and sound and showing kind of the interconnectedness of of everything on our on our planet i would argue that there is a topic too and <laughs> yeah. I think their existence yeah. is kind of the topic life on earth beautiful and brilliant about it and by the way yeah they're incredibly well shot <laughs> All of them, like really, really well shot. The envy of cinematographers, you know, the world around. All right. What do you got for your final, your final film, Mike? That was a really good choice, John. Uh, yeah, geez. Uh, 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 well, now I feel kind of sheepish yeah. about this, but whatever. It's personal. It's a personal one. And this probably goes more to uh, my relationship of why I love movies. Like really, and this really starts off with my, my dad who, you know, who's a, film lover in his own right so we would watch a lot of you know 21 days of bond and also a lot of westerns and this is going to be a popular one again that i think that there's going to be a lot of people who have seen it and some people who have maybe been turned off by the runtime of it but i'm going to go with sergio leone's once upon a time in the west awesome (laughs) i fucking love this movie is this four hours i'm trying to think is it three and a half four hours how long it's it's three and a half but it's just like every frame of this movie it's just (laughs) epic just epic sound acting character it is all epic and it looks incredible i know some people probably won't necessarily be guided towards it because it is a western and it is a western it is the Western to end all Westerns. Nothing against Unforgiven or Rio Bravo. Where can you watch it and what's the, give me, give the little bit of the storyline. Uh, right now, uh, once upon a time, you're going to have to rent it. I own it, so I don't have to. And I go back to this movie maybe once a year and I find something new in it. Uh, the story is, it's a revenge tale. I have a sneaking suspicion that this is one of these ones that uh, Quentin has probably pulled from a ton starts off at the beginning uh just the beginning at the train station charles bronson <laughs> probably not the name you we thought we'd be talking about here not to be confused with uh, clint eastwood is and he plays a variation of it he is a man with no name and he comes into town and he is coming to town to take vengeance but you aren't sure why i don't want to say anything because there is a pretty good justification when you see it that he is the man with the harmonica and he kind of just becomes known as harmonica and he comes down and he slowly, methodically uh, sort of exacts his vengeance on various people of the town. And you and you find out in snapshots, you're, you're showing something and you're given a little piece of the puzzle until the very end, which leads, of course, to a, you know, a, a one-on-one shootout. Uh, and this, it's not just him, but the other, mm-hmm. uh, the other character is played by Henry Fonda, 
and Jason Robards. And I'd even say Claudia Cardinal is uh, memorable. Gorgeous Cla- Claudia Cardinal. Uh, it's like everybody is a character in this film. And it is just, to me, it's a treat. It really is. It just oozes off of the screen. It's like pulp being done by a master filmmaker. I mean, uh, I just th- I can think of so many shots there of like you know looking out through the porch and uh, you know the the desert. There is a wonderful trick that they pull in the film, and the next time you watch it, John, pay attention to how in every scene they introduce Bronson and Robards because. Robards, he always uh, stumbles onto frame, uh-huh. while Bronson is always revealed onto frame, and they and they did that intentionally uh, to really get a contrasting uh, contrasting style between the two uh, two characters. This is one of the first films that we showed at the Edinburgh Film Series on a big screen, and yeah, it was another one of those films that yeah to see on a big screen, man. <laughs> That's what they're made for. I have never seen this one on a big screen, and uh, and I was late to this one too. I didn't see this in like my until like my mid twenties, and then I was like, yeah, I was fascinated by it. It was uh, this is one of these these ones for a minute that I kind of watched on repeat. Yeah, I mean, Leone is, uh, yeah, he he has his own language, right? His own cinematic language. You definitely, uh, if you haven't seen any of his films, this is a great great start for sure. Oh yeah. John, your last one. Last one. Well, all right, then I'm going to do a romance, um, a heady romance. So this is, I'm going to pick the second film in a trilogy. Uh, This is Before Sunset 2004, known as the now, the Before Trilogy by Richard Linklater as the filmmaker. It's available to rent on all the major platforms, three or four bucks. Mike, so I am, I'm breaking the rules a little bit because this is the the second one. That's fair. That's fair for this. <laughs> this is my personal favorite of the trilogy. Um, it was before sunrise, and then nine years later they did before sunset, and then nine years later uh, before midnight. So in the first film, which was nine years earlier, there's Jesse and Celine, played by Ethan Hawke and Julie Delpy. They meet on a train and they're on the train together and they talk and they talk and and a crush is formed and then in before sunset you know here's where the romance come in the jesse character is doing a book tour and he's in france and lo and behold crosses paths with celine and they spend the day and more together talking and talking and falling in love and a real romance is formed and it felt very authentic to me on screen. I was falling in love uh, with these characters as they're falling in love. The chemistry, the conversation feels like you're witnessing something special and magical in real time. Two characters that have a passion and a writer and a director that have a passion for life, music, books yeah it's a miracle that a second film got made because the first film was such a such a small uh independent and then the film gods blessed us with a third film uh after all so if you're a lover of language of cinema of great screen chemistry don't miss these films chemistry chemistry you said it you buy it. You totally do. I, I got to say, like, for a while I was dismissive of... Th- these are probably the films that made me uh-huh. sort of take attention, really, to Ethan Hawke, too. 
I think, on some level and be like, it's like, yeah. this guy is great. And he is. He's gone on to do other great things, but it's like, these were the ones that it's like, I sort of became a, a convert to him. What's your favorite of this trilogy, your your personal favorite, would you say? Mm. This is mine. What's Mike's? <laughs> yeah. Oh, boy. Uh, I think Before Sunset. Yeah. 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 It's funny, and that's what's sort of unique about these ones, where it's like the older you get, your perspective changes. I mean, oh, yeah. <laughs> not trying to say too much, but before midnight, there's things about it now that, uh, you know, that I'm like, mm, sure. Yeah, I know this. <laughs> yep. <laughs> it, yep. Yeah, again, the authenticity, right? Like, feels very, very real. Very real. I, I, I almost wanted to say before midnight. I, that one's a little, I think, the, the tone on it. You know, it's still endearing, but it's like where their characters have gone on some level. And you're, you're relieved to see them, but it's like it's it's interesting to see. And I, I, I don't know if we're going to get more of these, but it's just like it's not necessarily. Yeah, it's not an unhappy ending, but it's uh from it's interesting where they are. And where they are in their relationship, yeah. you know, Mike doing doing the math. If we were getting another one, we're it not, would we're be not this getting year. another one. <laughs> so I don't think we're getting another one unless it like just pops up out of nowhere as a wow, man, wouldn't that be an amazing surprise? And well, they've done and he's done that. Linklater has done that with these films. Uh, I, I do yeah. think at some point we are getting another one. Yeah. Uh, there's something that's sort of timeless about the relationship aspect that he's really exploring. That is like anybody who ever sort of criticizes Linklater. I mean, these are his understanding of some of these things and sort of the chances that he takes with these long form projects with something like this or, or boyhood or even the kind of the mm-hmm. f- more fun series that he's doing, I think now with uh, uh, Conf- Dazed and Confused and Everybody Wants Summer. Yeah. He, Linklater really understands our relationship with time on some level and, and culture in a yeah. different way that really speaks to us uh, as we are now. Yeah. Him and Nolan have a yeah. real obsession yeah. with time in different on, ways in cinema. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so real quick, uh, John, I guess for fun, uh, quick rundown. What, what were some, some of the ones that you left off? Oh man. I mean, I wanted to put a, uh, there's this filmmaker Haneke, which I think I've brought up a, a few times on this podcast. Like I, I just want people to watch his movies. You know, he's the director of, of Funny yeah. Games, The White Ribbon. Um, I, I could name many of them. Adore, uh, which was actually nominated for some Oscars. Yeah, I wanted yeah. to put one of his on here. I know we talked about maybe doing doing a list uh, in the future. Yeah, I didn't really go back to the oldies. My oldest one was They Shoot Horses, Don't They? But I really did want to put, like, chaplain's limelight on there uh but i'm glad that you hit a hit a chaplain one uh what about you what were some of the ones i thought about doing uh buster keaton's uh the general uh that's one of the ones that Mm -hmm. i loved was it sherlock jr uh which is just a great film about like a short film about filmmaking in general uh keaton to me is chaplain felt more appropriate but i love keaton um i also thought about adding the third man oh yeah i love the third man own the third man love the third yeah, I love the third man. Uh, and I did think about, uh, as I said, the Thin Red mm-hmm. Line. It was one of the ones I was looking at because I know a lot of people haven't necessarily touched it, but it's just like uh, sort of the um, very meditative reflection on, war. you know, war. It's just like, it's 
to me, that is, I, I know people will say Days of Heaven, but to me, a thin red line is uh, Malik's masterpiece. Yeah, that would be a good one to revisit in these times, for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I even thought of, like, for film filmmakers, I thought it was too niche, but have you ever seen The Five Obstructions? No. Okay, it's two filmmakers, it's a documentary, it's Lars von Trier, um, oh, okay. and uh, I can't remember the other Danish filmmakers. Yeah, his last name's Leff, I think. And Lars von Trier sets up a... You should watch it, Mike. All filmmakers should watch it. He sets up a challenge for this other filmmaker to remake one of his own films, but he puts obstructions... He he puts, like, rules on him of things... <laughs> like, he has to do it in a certain number of takes or in a certain amount of time, or he can't use this or that. It's really kind of fun. Um, yeah. Anyways, the seventh seal oh, yeah. was another one I was looking at, and uh, high and low. Watch all Bergman. Uh, watch all all yeah. Bergman. Uh, watch all Kurosawa. Uh, all Bergman. Yes. Wong, I, uh, I was you know something from Wong Kar Wai, but it, again, we limited it from yep. the five. Those were my five. Well, that was fun, Mike. Well, that's been our episode. Make sure you follow the Film Society of Northwestern Pennsylvania and the Greater Erie Film Office on social media. You'll find all the tags and links in the show notes for this episode. Until next time, this was Film Grain. Yay! Stuff that dreams are made of.